Chapter Ten of Cabbages and Kings by O. Henry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eric Metzler. The Shamrock and the Palm. One night, when there was no breeze and Coralio seemed closer than ever to the gratings of Avernus, five men were grouped about the door of the photograph establishment of Keogh and Clancy. Thus, in all the scorched and exotic places of the earth. Caucasians meet when the day's work is done to preserve the fullness of their heritage by the aspersion of alien things. Johnny Atwood lay stretched upon the grass in the undress uniform of a carib, and prated feebly of cool water to be had in the cucumber wood pumps of Dalesburg. Dr. Gregg, through the prestige of his whiskers and as a bribe against the relation of his imminent professional tales, was conceded the hammock that was swung between the door-jamb and a calabash-tree. Keogh had moved out upon the grass a little table that held the instrument for burnishing completed photographs. He was the only busy one of the group. Industriously from between the cylinders of the burnisher rolled the finished depictments of Coralio's citizens. Blanchard, the French mining engineer, in his cool linen viewed the smoke of his cigarette through his calm glasses impervious to the heat. Clancy sat on the steps, smoking his short pipe. His mood was the gossip's. The others were reduced, by the humidity, to the state of disability desirable in an audience. Clancy was an American with an Irish diathesis and cosmopolitan proclivities. Many businesses had claimed him, but not for long. The roadster's blood was in his veins. The voice of the tintype was but one of the many callings that had wooed him upon so many roads. Sometimes he could be persuaded to oral construction of his voyages into the informal and egregious. To-night there were symptoms of divulgement in him. "'Tis elegant weather for filibustering," he volunteered. "'It reminds me of the time I struggled to liberate a nation from the poisonous breath of a tyrant's clutch. "'Twas hard work.' "'Tis strain into the back and makes corns on the hands.' "'I didn't know you had ever lent your sword to an oppressed people,' murmured Atwood from the grass. "'I did,' said Clancy, "'and they turned it into a plowshare.' "'What country was so fortunate as to secure your aid?' airily inquired Blanchard. "'Where's Kamchatka?' asked Clancy, with seeming irrelevance. "'Why, off Siberia, somewhere in the Arctic regions.' somebody answered, doubtfully. "'I thought that was the cold one,' said Clancy, with a satisfied nod. "'I'm always getting the two names mixed. "'Twas Guatemala, then, the hot one. "'I've been filibustering with. "'You'll find that country on the map. "'Tis in the district known as the tropics. "'By the foresight of Providence it lies on the coast "'so the geography man could run the names of the towns off into the water. "'They're an inch long, small type.' composed of Spanish dialects, and, tis my opinion, of the same system of syntax that blew up the main. Yes, twas that country I sailed against, single-handed, and endeavoured to liberate it from a tyrannical government with a single-barrelled pickaxe, unloaded at that. You don't understand, of course. Tis a statement demandin' elucidation and apologies. Twas in New Orleans one morning about the first of June, I was standin' down on the wharf, looking about at the ships in the river. There was a little steamer moored right opposite me that seemed about ready to sail. The funnels of it were throwing out smoke, and a gang of roustabouts were carrying aboard a pile of boxes that was stacked up on the wharf. The boxes were about two feet square, 
and something like four feet long, and they seemed to be pretty heavy. I walked over, careless, to the stack of boxes. I saw one of them had been broken in handling. Twas curiosity made me pull up the loose top and look inside. The box was packed full of Winchester rifles. So, so, says I to myself, somebody's getting a twist on the neutrality laws. Somebody's aidin' with munitions of war. I wonder where the pop-guns are going. I heard somebody cough, and I turned around. There stood a little, round, fat man with a brown face and white clothes, a first-class-looking little man, with a four-carat diamond on his finger and his eye full of interrogations and respects. I judged he was a kind of foreigner, maybe from Russia or Japan or the archipelagos. Hist! says the round man, full of concealments and confidences. Will the senor respect the discoveryments he has made, that the mans on the ship shall not be acquaint? The senor will be a gentleman that shall not expose one thing that by accident occur. Monsieur, says I, for I judged him to be a kind of Frenchman, receive my most exasperated assurances that your secret is safe with James Clancy. Furthermore, I will go so far as to remark, Vive la liberty! Vive it good and strong! Whenever you hear of a Clancy obstructing the abolishment of existing governments, you may notify me by return mail. The senor is good, says the dark fat man, smiling under his black moustache. Wish you to come aboard my ship and drink of wine a glass. Being a Clancy, in two minutes me and the foreigner man were seated at a table in the cabin of the steamer, with a bottle between us. I could hear the heavy boxes being dumped into the hold. I judge that cargo must consist of at least two thousand Winchesters. Me and the brown man drank the bottle stuff, and he called the steward to bring another. When you amalgamate a Clancy with the contents of a bottle, you practically instigate secession. I had heard a good deal about these revolutions in them tropical localities, and I begun to want a hand of it. "'You going to stir things up in your country, ain't you, Monsieur?' says I, with a wink to let him know I was on. "'Yes, yes,' said the little man, pounding his fist on the table. "'A change of the greatest will occur. Too long have the people been oppressed with the promises and the never-to-happen things to become. The great work it shall be carry on. Yes, our forces shall in the capital cities strike of the soonest. Carambos!' "'Carambos is the word,' says I, beginning to invest myself with enthusiasm and more wine. "'Likewise, viva, as I said before. May the shamrock of old—' I mean the banana vine, or the pie plant, or whatever the imperial emblem may be of your downtrodden country, wave forever. A thousand thank yous, says the round man, for your emission of amicable utterances. What our cause needs of the very most is man's who will the work do, to lift it along. Oh, for one thousand strong good mans to aid the general de Vega, that he shall to his country bring those success and glory. It is hard, Oh, so hard to find good mans to help in the work. Monsieur, says I, leaning over the table and grasping his hand, I don't know where your country is, but me heart bleeds for it. The heart of a Clancy was never deaf to the sight of an oppressed people. The family is filibusterers by birth and foreigners by trade. If you can use James Clancy's arms and his blood in denuding your shores of the tyrant's yoke, they're yours to command. General de Vega was overcome with joy to confiscate my condolence of his conspiracies and predicaments. He tried to embrace me across the table, but his fatness and the wine that had been in the bottles prevented. 
Thus I was welcomed into the ranks of filibustery. Then the general man told me his country had the name of Guatemala, and was the greatest nation laved by any ocean, whatever, anywhere. He looked at me with tears in his eyes, and from time to time he would emit the remark, Ah, big, strong, brave mans, that is what my country need. General de Vega, as was the name by which he denounced himself, brought out a document for me to sign, which I did, making a fine flourish and curlicue with the tail of the Y. Your passage money, says the general, businesslike, shall from your pay be deduct. Twill not, says I, haughty. I'll pay my own passage. A hundred and eighty dollars I had in my inside pocket, and twas no common filibuster I was going to be filibustering for me board and clothes. The steamer was to sail in two hours, and I went ashore to get some things together I'd need. When I came aboard I showed the general with pride the outfit. Twas a fine chinchilla overcoat, arctic overshoes, fur cap and earmuffs, with elegant fleece-lined gloves and woolen muffler. Carambos, says the little general, what clothes are these that shall go to the tropic? And the little spalpeen laughs, and he calls the captain, and the captain calls the purser, and they pipe up the chief engineer, and the whole gang leans against the cabin and laughs at Clancy's wardrobe for Guatemala. I reflect a bit serious, and ask the general again to denominate the terms by which his country is called. He tells me, and I see then that twas the other one, Kamchatka, I had in mind. Since then I've had difficulty in separating the two nations in name, climate, and geographic disposition. I paid my passage, twenty-four dollars first cabin, and ate at table with the officer crowd. Down on the lower deck was a gang of second-class passengers, about forty of them, seeming to be dagos and the like. I wondered what so many of them were going along for. Well, then, in three days we sailed alongside that Guatemala. "'Twas a blue country, and not yellow, as tis miscolored on the map. "'We landed at a town on the coast where a train of cars was waiting for us on a dinky little railroad. "'The boxes on the steamer were brought ashore and loaded on the cars. "'The gang of Dagos got aboard, too, the general and me in the front car. "'Yes, me and General de Vega headed the revolution, as it pulled out of the seaport town. "'That train travelled about as fast as a policeman go into a riot.' It penetrated the most conspicuous lot of fuzzy scenery ever seen outside of geography. We run some forty miles in seven hours, and the train stopped. There was no more railroad. It was a sort of camp in a damp gorge full of wildness and melancholies. They was grading and chopping out the forests ahead to continue the road. Here, says I to myself, is the romantic haunt of the revolutionists. Here will Clancy, by the virtue that is in a superior race, and the inculcation of Fenian tactics, strike a tremendous blow for liberty. They unloaded the boxes from the train and begun to knock the tops off. From the first one that was open I saw General de Vega take the Winchester rifles and pass them around to a squad of morbid soldiery. The other boxes was open next, and believe me or not, divil another gun was to be seen. Every other box in the load was full of pickaxes and spades. And then, sorrow be upon them, tropics, the proud Clancy and the dishonored Dagos, each one of them had to shoulder a pick or a spade, and march away to work on that dirty little railroad. Yes, twas that the Dagos shipped for, and twas that the filibuster and Clancy signed for, though unbeknownst to himself at the time. In after days I found out about it. It seems twas hard to get hands to work on that road. The intelligent natives of the country was too lazy to work, 
Indeed, the saints know, twas unnecessary. By stretching out one hand, they could seize the most delicate and costly fruits of the earth, and by stretching out the other, they could sleep for days at a time without hearing a seven o'clock whistle or the footsteps of the rent-man upon the stairs. So regular the steamers traveled to the United States to seduce labor. Usually the imported spade-slingers died in two or three months from eating the overripe water and breathing the violent tropical scenery. Wherefore they made them sign contracts for a year when they hired them, and put an armed guard over the poor devils to keep them from running away. "'Twas thus I was double-crossed by the tropics through a family flailing of going out of the way to hunt disturbances. They gave me a pick, and I took it, meditating an insurrection on the spot. But there was the guards handling the Winchesters careless, and I come to the conclusion that discretion was the best part of filibustering. There was about a hundred of us in the gang starting out to work, and the word was given to move. I steps out of the ranks and goes up to that General de Vega man, who was smoking a cigar and gazing upon the scene with satisfactions and glory. He smiles at me, polite and devilish. "'Plenty work,' says he, "'for big strong mans in Guatemala. "'Yes, thirty dollars in the month. "'Good pay. "'Ah, yes. "'You strong, brave man. "'Bimby, we push those railroad in the capital very quick. "'They want you go work now. "'Adios, strong mans.' Monsieur says I, lingering, "'will you tell a poor little Irishman this?' When I set foot on your cockroachy steamer, and breathed liberal and revolutionary sentiments into your sour wine, did you think I was conspiring to sling a pick on your contemptuous little railroad? And when you answered me with patriotic recitations, humping up the star-spangled cause of liberty, did you have meditations of reducing me to the ranks of the stump-grubbling dagos and the chain-gangs of your vile and groveling country? The general man expanded his rotundity and laughed considerable. Yes, he laughed very long and loud, and I, Clancy, stood and waited. Comical mans, he shouts at last, so you will kill me from the laughing. Yes, it is hard to find the brave strong mans to aid my country. Revolutions? Did I speak of revolutions? Not one word. I say big strong mans is need in Guatemala. So the mistake is of you. You have looked in those one box containing those gun for the guard. You think all boxes is contained gun? No. There is not war in Guatemala. But work? Yes, good. Dirty dollar in the month. You shall shoulder one pickaxe, senor, and dig for the liberty and prosperity of Guatemala. Off to your work. The guard waits for you. Little fat poodle-dog of a brown man, says I, quiet, but full of indignations and discomforts. Things shall happen to you. Maybe not right away but as soon as J. Clancy can formulate something in the way of repartee. The boss of the gang orders us to work. I tramps off with the dagos, and I hear the distinguished patriot and kidnapper laughing hearty as we go. Tis a sorrowful fact. For eight weeks I built railroads for that misbehaving country. I filibustered twelve hours a day with a heavy pick and a spade, chopping away the luxurious landscape that grew upon the right-of-way. We worked in swamps that smelled like there was a leak in the gas mains, tramping down a fine assortment of the most expensive hothouse plants and vegetables. The scene was tropical beyond the wildest imagination of the geography man. The trees was all skyscrapers. The underbrush was full of needles and pins. There was monkeys jumping around and crocodiles and pink-tailed mockingbirds, and you stood knee-deep in the rotten water and grabbled roots for the liberation of Guatemala. 
of nights we would build smudges in camp to discourage the mosquitoes and sit in the smoke with the guards pacing all around us there was two hundred men working on the road mostly dagos niggermen spanishmen and swedes three or four were irish one old man named halloran a man of hibernian entitlements and discretions explained it to me he had been working on the road a year most of them died in less than six months he was dried up to gristle and bone and shook with chills every third night when you first come says he you think you'll leave right away but they hold out your first month's pay for your passage over and by that time the tropics has its grip on ye you're surrounded by a raging forest full of disreputable beasts lions and baboons and anacondas waiting to devour ye the sun strikes ye hard and melts the marrow in your bones ye get similar to the lettuce-eaters the poetry book speaks about ye forget the elevated sentiments of life such as patriotism revenge disturbances of the peace and the decent love of a clean shirt ye do your work and ye swallow the kerosene isle and rubber pipe-stems dished up to ye by the dago cook for food ye light your pipeful and say to yourself next week i'll break away you go to sleep and call yourself a liar for you know you'll never do it who is this general man asks i that calls himself de vega tis the man says halloran who is trying to complete the finishing of the railroad twas the project of a private corporation but it busted and then the government took it up de vega is a big politician and wants to be president the people want the railroad completed as their taxed might do on account of it the de vega man is pushing it along as a campaign move tis not my way says i to make threats against any man but there's an account to be settled between the railroad man and james o'dowd clancy twas that way i thought myself at first halloran says with a big sigh until i got to be a lettuce-eater the faults with these tropics they reduces a man's system tis a land as the poet says where it always seems to be after dinner i does me work and smokes me pipe and sleeps there's little else in life anyway you'll get that way yourself mighty soon don't be harbin any sentiments at all clancy i can't help it says i i'm full of em i enlisted in the revolutionary army of this dark country in good faith to fight for its liberty honors and silver candlesticks instead of which i am set to amputate in its scenery and grub in its roots tis the general man will have to pay for it two months i worked on that railroad before i found a chance to get away one day a gang of us was sent back to the end of the completed line to fetch some picks that had been sent down to port barrios to be sharpened they were brought on a hand-car and i noticed when i started away that the car was left there on the track that night about twelve i woke up halloran and told him my scheme run away says halloran good lord clancy do you mean it why i ain't got the nerve it's too chilly and i ain't slept enough run away i told you clancy i've eat the lettuce i've lost my grip tis the tropics that's done it tis like the poet says forgotten are our friends that we have left behind in the hollow lettuce land we will live and lay reclined you better go on clancy i'll stay i guess it's too early and cold and i'm sleepy so i had to leave halloran i dressed quiet and slipped out of the tent we were in when the guard came along i knocked him over like a ninepin with the green coconut i had and made for the railroad i got on that hand-car and made it fly twas yet a while before daybreak when i saw the lights of port barrios about a mile away i stopped the hand-car there and walked to the town 
I stepped inside the corporations of that town with care and hesitations. I was not afraid of the army of Guatemala, but me soul quaked at the prospect of a hand-to-hand -hand struggle with its employment bureau. Tis a country that hires its help easy and keeps them long. Sure, I can fancy Mrs. America and Mrs. Guatemala passin' a bit of gossip some fine still night across the mountains. Oh, dear, says Mrs. America, and it's a lot of trouble I'm havin' again with the help, senora, ma'am. Laws, now, says Mrs. Guatemala. You don't say so, ma'am. Now, my never think of leavin' me. Tee-hee, ma'am, snickers Mrs. Guatemala. I always wondered how I was going to move away from them tropics without being hired again. Dark as it was, I could see a steamer riding in the harbor, with smoke emerging from her stacks. I turned down a little grass street that run down to the water. On the beach I found a little brown nigger man just about to shove off in a skiff. "'Hold on, Sambo,' says I. "'Save English?' "'He plenty, yes,' says he, with a pleasant grin. "'What steamer is that?' I asks him. "'And where is it going? And what's the news, and the good word, and the time of day?' "'That steamer, the Conchita,' said the brown man, affable and easy, rolling a cigarette. "'Him come from New Orleans for load banana. Him got load last night. I think him sail in one, two hour. Very nice day we shall be goin' have. You hear some talky about big battle, maybe so? You think catchy General de Vega, senor? Yes? No?' "'How's that, Sambo?' says I. "'Big battle? What battle? Who wants catchy General de Vega?' I've been up at my old gold mines in the interior for a couple of months, and haven't heard any news. Oh, says the nigger man, proud to speak the English, very great revolution in Guatemala one week ago. General de Vega, him try be president. Him raise army. One, five, ten thousand mans for fight at the government. Those one government send five, forty, hundred thousand soldiers to suppress revolution. They fight big battle yesterday at Loma Grande that about nineteen or fifty mile in the mountain. That government soldier weep General de Vega. Oh, most bad. Five hundred, nine hundred, two thousand of his mans is kill. That revolution is smash, suppress, bust very quick. General de Vega him run away fast on one big mule. Yes, carambos. The general him run away, and his army is kill. That government soldier, they try find General de Vega very much. They want catchy him for shoot. You think they catchy that general, senor? Saints grant it, says I. T'would be the judgment of Providence for settin' the warlike talent of a clancy to grade in the tropics with a pick and shovel. But tis not so much a question of insurrections now, my little man, as tis of the hired man problem. Tis anxious I am to resign a situation of responsibility and trust with the White Wings Department of your great and degraded country. Row me in your little boat out to that steamer and I'll give you five dollars. Sinker pacers. Sinker pacers, says I, reducing the offer to the language and denomination of the tropic dialects. Cinco pesos, repeats the little man. Five dolly you give? T'was not such a bad little man. He had hesitations at first, saying that passengers leaving the country had to have papers and passports, but at last he took me out alongside the steamer. Day was just breaking as we struck her. There wasn't a soul to be seen on board. The water was very still, and the nigger man gave me a lift from the boat, and I climbed onto the steamer where her side was sliced to the deck for loading fruit. The hatches was open, and I looked down and saw the cargo of bananas that filled the hold to within six feet of the top. I thinks to myself, Clancy, you'd better go as a stowaway. It's safer. 
the steamer men might hand you back to the employment bureau. The tropical get you, Clancy, if you don't watch out. So I jumps down easy among the bananas, and digs out a hole to hide in among the bunches. In an hour or so I could hear the engines going, and feel the steamer rockin', and knew we were off to sea. They left the hatches open for ventilation, and pretty soon it was light enough in the hold to see fairly well. I got to feelin' a bit hungry, and thought I'd have a light fruit lunch by way of refreshment. I creeped out of the hole I'd made and stood up straight. Just then I saw another man crawl up about ten feet away and reach out and skin a banana and stuff it into his mouth. "'Twas a dirty man, black-faced and ragged and disgraceful of aspect. Yes, the man was a ringer for the pictures of the fat, weary Willie in the funny papers. I looked again and saw it was my general man, De Vega, the great revolutionist, mule-rider and pickaxe importer. When he saw me, the general hesitated with his mouth filled with banana and his eyes the size of coconuts. Hist! I says, not a word, or they'll put us off and make us walk. Vive la liberty, I says, coppering the sentiment by shoving a banana into the source of it. I was certain the general wouldn't recognize me. The nefarious work of the tropics had left me looking different. There was half an inch of roan whiskers covering me face, and me costume was a pair of blue overalls and a red shirt. "'How come you in the ship, senor?' asked the general as soon as he could speak. "'By the back door, whist,' says I. "'Twas a glorious blow for liberty we struck,' I continues. "'But we was overpowered by numbers. "'Let us accept our defeat like brave men and eat another banana.' "'Were you in the cause of liberty fighting, senor?' says the general, shedding tears on the cargo. "'To the last,' says I. "'Twas I led the last desperate charge against the minions of the tyrant.' but it made them mad, and we was forced to retreat. "'Twas I, General, procured the mule upon which you escaped. "'Could you give that ripe bunch a little boost this way, General? "'It's a bit out of my reach. Thanks.' "'Say you so, brave patriot,' said the General, again weeping. "'Adios, and I have not the means to reward your devotion. "'Barely did I my life bring away. Carambos, what a devil's animal was that mule, senor! "'Like ships in one storm was I dashed about.' The skin on myself was ripped away with the thorns and vines. Upon the bark of a hundred trees did that beast of the infernal bump, and caused outrage to the legs of mine. In the night to Port Barrios I came. I dispossess myself of that mountain of mule and hasten along the water-shore. I find a little boat to be tied. I launch myself and row to the steamer. I cannot see any mans on board, so I climbed one rope which hang at the side. I then myself hide in the bananas. Surely, I say, if the ship-captains view me, they shall throw me again to those Guatemala. Those things are not good. Guatemala will shoot General de Vega. Therefore I am hide and remain silent. Life itself is glorious. Liberty it is pretty good. But not so good as life, I do not think. Three days, as I said, was the trip to New Orleans. The general man and me got to be cronies of the deepest dye. Bananas we ate until they were distasteful to the sight and an eyesore to the palate, but to bananas alone was the bill of fare reduced. At night I crawls out, careful, on the lower deck, and gets a bucket of fresh water. That General de Vega was a man inhabited by an engorgement of words and sentences. He added to the monotony of the voyage by divesting himself of conversation. He believed I was a revolutionist of his own party, there being, as he told me, a good many Americans and other foreigners in its ranks. "'Twas a braggart and a conceited little gabbler it was, though he considered himself a hero. 
"'Twas on himself he wasted all his regrets at the failing of his plot. Not a word did the little balloon have to say about the other misbehaving idiots that had been shot or run themselves to death in his revolution. The second day out he was feeling pretty braggy and uppish for a stowed-away conspirator that owed its existence to a mule and stolen bananas. He was telling me about the great railroad he had been building, and he relates what he calls a comic incident about a fool Irishman he'd inveigled from New Orleans to sling a pick on his little morgue of a narrow-gauge line. "'Twas sorrowful to hear the little dirty general tell the opprobrious story of how he put salt upon the tail of that reckless and silly bird, Clancy. Laugh he did, hearty and long. He shook with laughing, the black-faced rebel and outcast, standing neck-deep in bananas, without friends or country. "'Ah, senor,' he snickers, "'to the death you would have laughed at that drollest Irish. I say to him, strong big man's is need very much in Guatemala.' I will blow strike for your down-pressed country, he say. That shall you do, I tell him. Ah, it was an Irish so comic. He sees one box break upon the wharf that contained for the guard a few gun. He think there is gun in all the box. But that is all pickaxe. Yes. Ah, senor, could you the face of that Irish have seen when they set him to the work? "'Twas thus the ex-boss of the employment bureau contributed to the tedium of the trip with merry jests and anecdote but now and then he would weep upon the bananas and make oration about the lost cause of liberty and the mule. "'Twas a pleasant sound when the steamer bumped against the pier in New Orleans. Pretty soon we heard the pat-a-pat of hundreds of bare feet, and the dago gang that unloads the fruit jumped on the deck and down into the hold. Me and the general worked a while at passing up the bunches, and they thought we were part of the gang. After about an hour we managed to slip off the steamer onto the wharf. "'Twas a great honor on the hands of an obscure Clancy, having the entertainment of the representative of a great foreign filibuster in power. I first bought for the general and myself many long drinks and things to eat that were not bananas. The general man trotted along at my side, leaving all the arrangements to me. I led him up to Lafayette Square and sat him on a bench in the little park. Cigarettes I had bought for him, and he humped himself down on the seat like a little, fat, contented hobo, I look him over as he sets there, and what I see pleases me. Brown by nature and instinct, he is now brindled with dirt and dust. Praise to the mule, his clothes is mostly strings and flaps. Yes, the looks of the general man is agreeable to Clancy. I ask him, delicate, if by any chance he brought away anybody's money with him from Guatemala. He sighs and bumps his shoulders against the bench. Not a cent. All right. Maybe, he tells me, some of his friends in the tropic outfit will send him funds later. The general was as clear a case of no visible means as I ever saw. I told him not to move from the bench, and then I went up to the corner of Podras and Carondelet. Along there is O'Hara's beat. In five minutes along comes O'Hara, a big fine man, red-faced, with shining buttons, swinging his club. T'would be a fine thing for Guatemala to move into O'Hara's precinct would be a fine bit of recreation for Danny to suppress revolutions and uprisings once or twice a week with his club. "'Is fifty-forty-six working yet, Danny?' says I, walking up to him. "'Overtime,' says O'Hare, looking over me suspicious. "'Want some of it?' Fifty-forty-six is the celebrated city ordinance authorizing arrest, conviction, and imprisonment of persons that succeed in concealing their crimes from the police.' "'Don't you know Jimmy Clancy?' says I. 
ye pink gilt monster so when o'hara recognized me beneath the scandalous exterior bestowed upon me by the tropics i backed him into a doorway and told him what i wanted and why i wanted it all right jimmy says o'hara go back and hold the bench i'll be along in ten minutes in that time o'hara strolled through lafayette square and spied two weary willies disgracing one of the benches in ten minutes more j clancy and general de vega late candidate for the presidency of guatemala was in the station-house the general is badly frightened and calls upon me to proclaim his distinguishments and rank the man says i to the police used to be a railroad man he's on the bum now tis a little bug-house he is on account of losing his job carambos says the general fizzing like a little soda-water fountain you fought senor with my forces in my native country why do you say the lies you shall say i am the general de vega one soldier one caballero railroader says i again on the hog no good been livin for three days on stolen bananas look at him ain't that enough twenty-five dollars or sixty days was what the recorder gave the general he didn't have a cent so he took the time they let me go as i knew they would for i had money to show and o'hara spoke for me yes sixty days he got twas just so long that i slung a pick for the great country of Camp guatemala clancy paused the bright starlight showed a reminiscent look of happy content on his seasoned features keogh leaned in his chair and gave his partner a slap on his thinly clad back that sounded like the crack of the surf on the sands tell him you devil he chuckled how you got even with the tropical general in the way of agricultural manoeuvrings having no money concluded clancy with unction they set him to work his fine out with a gang from the parish prison clearing ursuline street around the corner was a saloon decorated genially with electric fans and cool merchandise i made that me headquarters and every fifteen minutes i'd walk around and take a look at the little man filibustering with a rake and shovel twas just such a hot broth of a day as this has been and i'd call at him hey monsieur and they'd look at me black with the damp showing through his shirt in places fat strong mans says i to general de vega is needed in new orleans yes to carry on the good work carambos erin gopra end of chapter ten recording by eric metzler albuquerque new mexico united states of america